Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is journalist Tara Henley. I'm going to tell you about her in a second, but just quickly, some announcements about the Unspeakeasy. That is my community for free-thinking women. Lots of stuff happening in the first quarter of this year around the Unspeakeasy. We are, of course, working on our online community, which we're hoping to launch very soon, and I'll keep you updated about that. But in the meantime, we have two retreats scheduled. The first one is in Los Angeles, February 18th and 19th. That is a weekend, and that is a daytime-only retreat. Most of them are overnight, three nights, but this one is a little bit different. It is almost sold out. We're going to cap this at 15 or so people. But if you are interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com and request information. The second retreat is April 17th through 20th in Leavenworth, Washington, right outside of Seattle. This is our Seattle area retreat. Had a lot of requests for an event in the Pacific Northwest. And this is going to be three nights, four days, and we're going to have a special guest speaker in Katie Herzog of the Blocked and Reported podcast. She is going to be joining us and uh, we're just going to have, you know, three, four days of amazing discussions, talks that I will facilitate. People are going to talk about all kinds of things. These retreats are off the record. We don't ever publicize or talk about who was there, at least not without anybody's permission. There's no social media. There's no tweeting. There's no Instagramming during it. It is all very much on the ground. A lot of touching grass, intellectual touching of grass, if you know what I mean. So anyway, if you're interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com, request information. Again, Seattle area, April 17th through 20th. Los Angeles, February 18th and 19th. Okay. My guest, journalist Tara Henley, is also an author and a podcaster. She's based in Canada, and she has become one of the most celebrated figures in the, uh, are we going to use this term again? Heterodox space, the free thinking space, critical thinking space. Take your pick. Tara is the author of the 2020 book, Lean Out, a meditation on the madness of modern life. And she was a longtime producer of television and radio for the CBC. She made a big splash almost exactly a year ago when she started a Substack newsletter, the very first post for which was a statement about her departure from that organization. I'm going to read you a few lines of what she wrote. She says, when I started at the National Public Broadcaster in 2013, The network produced some of the best journalism in the country. By the time I resigned last month, it embodied some of the worst trends in mainstream media. In a short period of time, the CBC went from being a trusted source of news to churning out clickbait that reads like a parody of the student press. While that post went viral and provoked such a massive response, much of it positive, but also there was a lot of outrage as well, that you won't be surprised. Tara has a lot to say about it. She joined me for a conversation about what's transpired in the year since, and above all, why she thinks journalism took the turn it has, and also why so many people within it are reluctant to speak out, uh, even if they profoundly disagree with what's happening. She also talks about her deeply progressive upbringing in Vancouver, her personal relationship to second and third wave feminism, and the ways in which she thinks urgent matters around economic hardship and class politics are being ignored. Tara stuck around for some bonus content that's available to paying subscribers to this podcast Substack. So in that portion, we get a little more personal. She talks about how she feels about aging, about how the promises of the 1980s did and did not pan out for her, and also about dealing with a cancer diagnosis in her 20s. She asked me some personal questions too. So if you want to hear that, please become a paying subscriber at megandaum.substack.com. I'm planning on offering lots of more bonus content like this in the coming year. And I think you're going to like it. I really liked this entire conversation with Tara. So here it is. 
Tara Henley. Welcome to The Unspeakable. Megan, thank you so much for having me. It's been exactly a year to the day, I think, since you posted your viral article about your departure from the CBC. Is that right? It is. Today is the day. Today's the day. We're recording this on January 3rd. So it's not, people aren't going to hear this for a couple of weeks, but this is a a fortuitous time to be speaking. This is a landmark event that happened a year ago. So you posted an article about your departure from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, where you were a television and radio producer. You talked about how you had been there for nearly 10 years, and you saw a market shift in the way things were covered, and you noted that you were fielding a lot of questions from the audience about things like why there was such an emphasis on niche issues. You said people wanted to know why, for example, non-binary Filipinos concerned about the lack of LGBT terms in Tagalog was an editorial priority for the CBC. Here we are a year later. Can you just take us back to where you were at that time? What life was like for you and what you were thinking about was in store for you? Yeah, my gosh. I've I've obviously spent some time thinking about that today because as you say, it, it has been a whole year. And um, last January, I had at the end of December, had resigned from my position. I had a role as a full-time current affairs radio producer on a a show called Ontario Morning. And I was on contract to December 2023. And I had been working with CBC for a long time. I started in 2013 as a television producer. And I had done a ton of different roles in both Vancouver and in the Toronto newsroom. And I had produced a couple of radio documentaries. I was a mentor for young journalists in my newsroom. I was a monthly on-air columnist for books for my region, for the morning shows, and had done a lot of the different kind of roles, directed shows, ran shows, and had taken time off to write my book and then had come back and to the CBC and then the pandemic had hit. So I had worked through all of the kind of crazy extreme moment. And I um, I think that I was pretty shell-shocked at a certain point. It seemed like a lot of the sort of journalistic ethics that I had been taught seemed to be kind of falling by the wayside. There was a lot of groupthink, to my view, and a lot of fear of cancel culture. There were uh, bottom-up pressures on the newsroom. There were top-down pressures on the newsroom. And it was just a very extreme moment. And I had been a journalist at this point for, I guess, 20 years. I think it's 21 this year. And I had worked in TV and radio and newspapers and magazines and digital. I had never seen something like this before. And I found it so troubling. And I argued behind the scenes for probably about 18 months, maybe a bit longer in story meetings. Uh, And eventually I knew that I was going to have to go independent. And it was very scary. Um, Not the best financial decision, probably, you know. Well, depends. (laughs) Depends who you are. Yeah. (laughs) But the risk was quite big. And uh, I thought about it for a very long time before I did it. And I resigned from my job. I still wasn't 100% convinced that I would sort of have a public conversation about why I left. And January 3rd, the morning of January 3rd last year, I was sitting at my computer I was listening to MOP's anti-up on constant loop, just trying to work myself up to press publish. And I just had no expectations and no idea what was to come. Um, in, in Canada, if you write something controversial, uh, chances are very good that the Canadian media will ignore it. This had happened before to me. I'd seen it happen to many others. I basically just thought that's what would happen with this post. And uh, as you say, that was not what happened. It was very overwhelming. And it started, like, I think I published at 9 a.m. It started at 9.01. Like, the second 
that I published. Oh, the digital storm. <laughs> so you know, so you know, they read the whole thing. <laughs> Don't you love it when they react and like you've written something? I've had the experience where I published something that's like five thousand words long or even longer, and yeah. within three minutes, people are livid because they know exactly what I said. It's wild. Um, okay, so let's back up a little bit. I think you know one thing that happens is that. People hear people like me and you and others lamenting what's happened in newsrooms, what's happened in various institutions when it comes to sort of call it what you will, social justice overreach or just obsession with identity politics. And it's very easy for I think people to think it sounds overblown. Mm -hmm. So by way of heading that off, can you give a couple examples of what was happening? What kinds of fights were you getting into in the newsroom? Yeah, so I think the the main sort of thrust of my critique is trends in coverage. That's the first piece. And so I gave a ton of examples in the piece of coverage that I felt was kind of out of whack. One of the main pieces of coverage that I argued about a lot in the newsroom was our coverage of the vaccine mandates. So by the time that those were introduced in Canada in October, you could already see that there were a lot of breakthrough infections if you were checking the data every day. So the idea that mandates should be in place to stop the transmission of the virus didn't make sense. And yet we were taking what the government, what public health was saying at face value. And I couldn't figure out why. I found that really disturbing. That I felt in the past, my job as a journalist had always been to question, to be critical. And that didn't seem to apply to this story. And I couldn't figure out why, because it had such a huge impact on people's livelihoods, on their mobility. Um, If you worked for the federal civil service, which the CBC is included in, you couldn't work, couldn't keep your job if you weren't vaccinated. And so that was one sort of issue. Another issue that I had was our cultural coverage. So I was a current affairs producer, and this is like a huge grab bag of stories every day. One of the stories that I found kind of most disturbing had to do with the Dave Chappelle controversy. Now, we did not cover that on Ontario Morning, but they did cover that on our big pop culture show. And that segment did not represent the view that kind of many, many people in the public and many people in comedy hold about Dave Chappelle. He's hugely, hugely popular. It was basically about how problematic he was. And it's funny, I was just on January 1st, I was at the Dave Chappelle show in Toronto. Oh. And it was a sold out show. The audience, I think it's like about 20,000, something like that. Audience, every walk of life. Yeah. And so that didn't make sense to me either. And then um, some of the other things I was concerned about was uh, we had this new race based booking form for our guests. And I was actually on the committee for that. And I felt really disturbed by the idea that we were going to be booking and kind of filling out this race form for every guest. Okay, wait a second. What does this mean? If somebody is a guest, they get handed this form to fill out? Or no. this thing that you're doing so, before deciding on them? So this was a, a pilot project in my newsroom. And the idea was to fill out a form for every guest that you booked and you would try to identify their identity categories. The problem was uh, because this was not a public project, because it wasn't something that the network was ready to discuss with the public, we couldn't ask people how they identified. And so we had to go (laughs) rooting around (laughs) on social media to try to guess what people's identities were. And are these racial categories or mainly there were mainly there were other categories as well, but but mainly, mainly the idea is to, you know, increase the diversity of the people who are on air, which is not a bad, not a bad thing at all. I just my main concern was that in focusing narrowly on race and in some cases on gender and identity, we weren't thinking about sort of the diversity of thought that we need to represent. We weren't thinking about region. We weren't thinking about class background. We weren't thinking about education. We weren't thinking about religious affiliation. 
Um, so you could easily have a very racially diverse guest group, but have all of them live in downtown Toronto, make over 100000 a year, all espouse sort of a woke viewpoint. And so I was really... And also, I mean, at that time, I was thinking a lot. I mean, this is after George Floyd. I was thinking a lot about the extreme moment that we were in in the racial conversation and feeling deeply, deeply uncomfortable with this idea of race being the most important thing about a person. And so I voiced those concerns as well. And there were also some kind of top-down policies that I was pretty concerned about. To get a job at CBC, even a contract, which is what I was on, a lot of the workforce at CBC, I think roughly a quarter, um, I don't know what the exact numbers are at this date, is precariously employed. And so that could be contract labor or it could be what's called a casual. And so you might work on the same show for an entire year, but you would only get your shifts like in two or three weeks at a time blocks. So you never know kind of what your future is. And I think that really inhibits the functioning the functioning of proper journalism in the newsroom. And so anyways, to, to get these contracts, you have to sit for what's called a board. And in the board, you have usually three people interviewing you. You have set questions. And those questions often involve sort of the network's established position on diversity, et cetera. And the answers are quite ideological. And you are scored in terms of numbers for each answer. And whether you get the role, the person has to what's called win the board. So it's not about your qualifications. It's not about your experience. It's not about whether you've worked on that show for a year and thrived. It's about mouthing these political statements. And that was really concerning to me as well. But when you say it's not about that, obviously those things have to factor in to some degree, experience, competence, that sort of thing. Are you suggesting that they really didn't care about actual qualifications? Well, my understanding is you would need qualifications to even get in the room, okay. but that the position is decided on whether you win that award. I see. And this was discussed out in the open. Like this was not sort of voce or people sort of whispering and rolling their eyes. This was just accepted as the procedure. The procedure is laid out and is is known to everyone at the CBC. You have a board, you're interviewed by these people. Er- everyone knows the sort of questions to expect. Yeah. Okay. So when you would push back against these things, whether it be vaccine mandates or this kind of hiring procedure, what kinds of things would people say to you? Well, I think there's a range of responses. In general, what I've tried to do is not kind of repeat things that my colleagues said in the newsroom because I don't want to throw colleagues under the bus and particularly not precariously employed colleagues. And so I've kind of shied away from repeating things that people said when I would push back. Okay. But like just in general, it's sounding to me and correct me if I'm not hearing this all the way correctly. Like there was just an assumption that for something like vaccines, there was a sort of moral mandate to frame the story in such a way that would encourage everybody to get vaccinated. Did they was the feeling that there was some kind of um being on the right side of things required a particular kind of framing and that that was the kind of duty of the journalist at that time? I think that the general sense in the newsroom, I mean, I think back to the issue of groupthink, I think that you had a lot of people who shared the same views on these kinds of things. And that uh, if you have like nine out of 10 people on the same show who all see it the same way, that that is a very powerful force. And I think it really nudges the coverage in a certain way. I think that's why you always need someone who's a dissenter, someone who will argue different points and, and, and really kind of push everybody to be thinking about things in a different way. And I also think that the fear of cancel culture was quite quite large at that point. I think people were very scared of voicing different opinions if they had them, very scared of booking guests that were controversial. I think there was just a real kind of chill in the newsroom and also a real majority who felt the same way on those issues. Mm -hmm. And was this pretty new? Was this pretty like 2020 
George Floyd pandemic centric, because as you know, a lot of us who've been talking about this stuff, we've been talking about it for many years, Mm -hmm. like, you know, starting around 2015, even, and certainly with the rise of Trump and all of that. Was it was it a little bit slower in Canada just because you didn't have Donald Trump in your face quite as much? Or had this kind of been in your consciousness for a longer time than that? It's a really good question. I mean, it certainly felt really new and really extreme after 2020. I am from the left, and I think I was probably a bit later to this conversation than you and others. I I think it took me a little longer to start waking up to this stuff. The kind of worldview that I'm describing, this cluster of views on race and gender and then COVID, this cluster of views, I don't know what to call it. I've I sometimes refer to it as woke. It's really hard to know. Yeah. I mean, it's you such need a to find a better word. It's such a terrible term. It upsets people a lot, and so I try not to use it. But I don't really know what to call this movement. Sometimes I call it identitarian moralism. Sometimes oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it, but anyways, this this sort of cluster of views, I think, had always been in the room at the network. I certainly, you know, remember moments of seeing it in action before 2020. But it was not the only voice in the room. And I don't have a problem with it being a voice in the room. It's a view. It's a legitimate view. I think it's fine to hear it out. But I, I disagree with it being the only voice in the room. And after 2020, it felt like it was the only voice in the room. It felt like either it was true believers or it was people who were terrified to say anything for fear of losing work. Right. So what was the reaction after you hit send? This was, was this a Substack post yeah. that actually went viral? Amazing. So this was your f- very first Substack post. It was. This is an ideal scenario. It was. It was. It was very surprising. The One of the national newspapers reached out to me within a few hours and asked me if they could run it. And then they ran it the next day all across the country. <laughs> so their favorite thing, if something is already <laughs> written, pre-existing content. <laughs> um, yeah. So it got a lot of play. It was uh, a really... I started getting like a huge amount of mail from the public. People writing to me at Substack, people commenting, people tweeting, you know, people emailing through the Substack platform. It was like people that acquaintances texting me. I mean, it was news producers reaching out to me. It was absolutely, I've I've never experienced anything like that in my entire career. It was so overwhelming. And this was positive feedback. Mostly positive. Yeah. Mostly positive. There was a huge amount of Canadians that reached out and said, we love the CBC. We've been, you know, viewers and listeners of the CBC for 20 years. We're on the left. Um, but lately we've been really disappointed in the coverage and really upset by it. And we, we just want a better broadcaster. That was, I would say, like the, the main thing that I heard. Of course, I heard from a lot of conservatives. I heard from a lot of journalists all across the country and then, and then across the states as well who said they shared those concerns, that they'd seen that in their own workplaces. So it was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and then Twitter got involved. And uh, <laughs> I took a lot of heat on Twitter for sure. Uh, there were hit pieces for sure. And of course, those pylons were not fun. Um, but by and large, the response was very positive. And I took the view that I would just not engage with any of the pylon, with any of the hit pieces, and just put my head down and focus on the work. And that's what I've done for the last year. And I've I've done 165 posts in this last year, 63 podcasts. And wow. it's been just a really, really productive, amazing, satisfying year. Yeah, you are remarkably productive. I am in awe of your output. Not not to jolt us back into your your hit pieces, but there's there's one in particular that I found quite amusing, and it also <laughs> it reminds me of a, a couple pieces that were written about me. I, I have a couple uh, from this a similar genre. So I, I this is from a some kind of blog that I've never. I'd never heard of before, but I'll just say the title is <laughs> Breaking Unremarkable White Woman Quits Job, <laughs> Cites Too Much Diversity. 
And uh, yes, so she, this, this writer goes on and on about how uh, you're, everything is just one big bad faith argument and that the real problem with diversity coverage and sort of racial climate at the CBC uh, is exactly is not what you say, but the fact that journalists of color can't get a leg up and newsrooms are dominated by, by white people. So you had it, you were on to something, but you just, uh, you were identifying the wrong problem. Mm. <laughs> I mean, what do you do when stuff like that runs? Because I've been, I sometimes think, well, it's better to just post it myself and sort of get out in front of it and reclaim it. But you, you just ignored all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I, I never read that one. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, no. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. I'll text it to you right now. (laughs) We can look at it. We can read it together. Yeah. Uh, No, I hadn't. I hadn't seen that one. In general, I just felt like, like, look, I've I've said something very controversial, and I'll I'll take the heat for it. And people are free to make whatever criticisms they want of what I've said. And as writers, as journalists, we should expect that, and we should accept that. I also felt like I didn't need to respond to most of them because because most of them, I think, were written in quite a bad faith way. I'm thinking in particular about one hit piece that was um, full of factual errors mm-hmm. and didn't reach out to me for comment and like stuff that was I'm like one particular criticism of me was that I had mentioned the housing crisis in my in my resignation post and that clearly I didn't care about the housing crisis because I hadn't tweeted about it in two years. But my book has a whole chapter on the housing crisis. I mean, these are things that are very easy to establish. (laughs) If you don't tweet, it it didn't happen. (laughs) So most of it, I just felt like it wasn't necessary. And I also felt like it was a distraction from the real work of going out there and trying to do a different kind of journalism and trying to trying to do the things that I felt that I couldn't do in my previous role. I also felt like if I'm calling for more open debate, then I should feel comfortable with that. I should feel comfortable with people being out there in the public square saying uh, things that might be difficult for me to hear sometimes, but are just part of you know the discourse. Um, I think that that, and this might get to something you and I have talked about before, is that I do value the idea, and this is very Gen X of me, of mental toughness. Of like, mm-hmm. I'm an adult. I've said something controversial. I should expect some flack for it. And um, and that's kind of how I proceeded. Right. Although if they're saying things that are untrue, it's hard to know what the right course of action is to just let it sit there. I mean, I've for actually sure. had this conversation with people who are a little younger, like millennials and younger people will say, oh, that's so Gen X to just ignore the thing and hope it'll go away that that's not really a responsible professional response. You you have to set the record straight. You have to respond. Mm. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know either. Yeah. I don't know either. I mean, that you could also just spend your entire time arguing with people online. And yes, I don't think that's you know very, people who do this. Yes. I don't see that as very dignified. I mean, I, I just don't. Particularly right. stuff that's so outlandish that um, it just, yeah. just doesn't seem like worth getting into to me. Yeah. Well, someone did say, where was Tara's discomfort when whiteness, heteronormativity, ableism is unquestionably centered, I guess, at the CBC? What made Tara stay then? I mean, one thing that did come up, and this is in this uh, unremarkable white woman piece, is just this idea that because newsrooms are disproportionately white, college-educated people, that that is a sort of racial problem in and of itself. So you know, this article, I don't know if these numbers are exactly correct, but white journalists, I guess this is in, this is the Canadian, Canadian Association of Journalists released a report about newsroom demographics. White journalists hold 81.9% of supervisor roles and 79.6% of top three leadership positions, approximately 90% of outlets that participated in this survey <laughs> have no Latin, mm-hmm. Middle Eastern, or mixed race journalists. Mm-hmm. Almost 80% have no Black or Indigenous journalists. So this is something I've been saying a lot lately. People who are not upper middle class, college educated, with family money in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. are going to have a lot harder time going into a career like journalism because it doesn't pay anything. Yeah. 
And I feel like this point gets lost. If you are a first generation person to go to college, if you're from a marginalized background of any kind, and you want to get ahead in the world, you're probably going to go to law school or go into finance. Like, what do we do with that? Like, yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I think that diversity in the newsroom is incredibly, incredibly important. I just think that we shouldn't only view it through a, the lens of race. I do think that's an important, one important thing to think about, but there are many others too. I mean, in my entire time at the network, I don't believe I ever worked with one self-identified conservative ever. And I worked with one guy who told me he was a centrist. Every other person I worked with. <laughs> like like he whispered it to you <laughs> or he was drunk. <laughs> so, so that's an issue. I think the class issue that you identified is the key issue. So if you are deciding that that it's important for the newsrooms to diversify, which I 100% support that idea, and then you only view it through the lens of racial diversity, you can end up with a newsroom that is increasingly racially diverse, but not economically diverse at all. All people with college degrees, all people from privileged economic backgrounds, and you know, all people in living in sort of affluent neighborhoods. Like these, these are this is part of the problem with journalism right now. Journalism used to be a working class profession and it no longer is. And it's become increasingly isolated from the public who it is supposed to serve. Um, so I think there's a lot of different factors that we need to consider when we consider the diversification of newsrooms. And I think it's complicated. And that's why I think the sort of online screaming culture does not help to work through those complicated, urgent issues. Right. Because by definition, people who are working class out there doing jobs are not sitting on Twitter all day screaming at people. Yeah. And I mean, even the structure structure at my former employer that I was identifying, if you have a quarter of your journalists who don't know if they're going to have shifts beyond two weeks, will that journalist go and fight for a story in a news meeting? Will that journalist fight for an alternative perspective or a different guest or mm -hmm. a controversial viewpoint? Or no, you're not going to unless you're crazy like I am. You're, you're not going to. I've, I've been in that position many times at the CBC where I don't know when my next shifts are coming from. And it's, it's not conducive to taking risks. Yeah. And you have spoken really beautifully and written really beautifully about these class issues and just the way that this stage of capitalism in which we found ourselves takes an absolute toll on the body, on the soul, on our social lives. I want to talk about your thoughts around all of that stuff in the context of your, of your Substack. You have an incredibly incredibly successful enterprise, but you obviously just must work your tail off. You seem to be working around the clock. Mm -hmm. What do you think and feel about this new creative economy as it's known? Well, uh, on the one thing, I on the one hand, I think it's very necessary right now. I think it's a really necessary counterbalance to where the mainstream media finds itself. Mainstream media, of course, has incredible journalists doing incredible work all over the place. But as a whole, I'm critical of where it kind of finds itself in this era. And I think that the Substack economy, the podcast, I think it's a necessary counterbalance. And I think it's forcing the mainstream media to acknowledge alternate viewpoints because when you have those viewpoints circulating on big podcasts that have way more listeners than you know your average CNN show or your average NPR yeah. show i mean you at a certain point you have to acknowledge those viewpoints and those are often viewpoints that are held by a huge portion of the the actual public so i think it's a necessary counterbalance for me it's been incredibly satisfying to just go ahead and do the work that I most want to do. And I'm very grateful for the Substack model because it's worked really well for me. I think also there's there are downsides that we have to acknowledge when that you've talked about before audience capture. I think you have to really think about that. Also editing, as you and I have talked about, I, I currently do not have a hired editor and I have my entire career and I miss that a lot. And then I think that there's the work issue, as you as you point out. I mean, I certainly work longer hours than I used to, and that 
that is something like you you do wonder like is it is it sustainable over the long haul and i also think that the sort of winner take all dynamic on substack i mean you wonder what what the younger journalists like how that will work at scale how it will work for the next generation so those are some of the concerns i have we're going to pause here for a short message from me are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there well there are lots more right here i've been doing this show every week for more than two years and i pretty much do it all by myself I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. You grew up pretty liberal. My understanding is that you grew up like you weren't homeschooled necessarily, but you were certainly not, you you were not a heterodox, you were not raised to be a heterodox <laughs> little kid, let's put it that way. No, I grew up in like the heart of the left coast progressive scene. You know, my parents were hippies, they had lived on communes. Yeah, no, I definitely did not grow up to be heterodox at all. Although both of my parents are thoughtful, um, smart people for sure. And critical people. But no, the the sort of broader kind of scene that I grew up in in Vancouver was extremely kind of what you might call quote unquote woke. But I I had doubts for a long time because I had doubts about sort of that I was born in 75 about that era and what it was like for children. You know, the extreme endpoint of some of these ideologies are not really conducive to family life or stability or community, they can kind of veer into pretty self-absorbed, narcissistic sort of uh, lanes. And I- Are you talking, sorry, are you talking about like 70s second wave feminism kind of stuff? Or are you talking about the ideology of today? I'm talking about, I'm talking about the 70s now. I'm talking about the sort of like strange brew of like new age thought uh, kind of yoga culture, feminism, activism, like this Mm -hmm. kind of strange mix that I grew up in on the left coast. So I had begun questioning a long time ago, but I think Me Too was what really changed things for me because Me Too just seemed outrageous to me past a certain point. Wait, okay, say more about that. Because in me, in the beginning, everybody was okay with me too. Like there was a, there was a, there was a, a honeymoon period with it. There was, and but things changed very quickly from my view. And you could see the erosion of due process. You could see these sort of extreme. Like I, I remember saying at the time to close friends, I just don't think a political movement should be helmed by trauma. I just don't think that's a rational, mm-hmm. reasonable response. I don't think this is going to end well. And I I don't think that it did. And the other thing that I really noticed during that time was it was very hard to voice criticisms. And that sort of mob mentality and the pylons and all of that stuff. And hearing stories, you know, anecdotal stories of young, like 20-year-old men who had been caught up in that dragnet and who had maybe made a mistake at some point as a teenager and had lost mm. I mean it just like very extreme stuff and it just doesn't it just seems so out of step with the society that we were supposed to be living in that had the presumption 
of innocence until proven guilty. And I also thought it was destructive to relationships between men and women. I thought it was had a destructive element in the workplace. And I say all of that still believing that it was important to talk about. I mean, we're women. Most women have experienced sort of unwanted sexual attention, many of us in sort of extreme ways. And that's an important thing to address. And I I don't know how it got so off the rails. And then I, I don't know how it became so difficult to raise red flags about that. Was there any part of you, though, in the beginning of Me Too that thought that was sort of moved to think back on your experiences and think, well, actually, no, that wasn't that incident wasn't so cool. I shouldn't have laughed that off. Or actually, that was pretty crappy what happened that one time. Like, was there any sort of inventory that came up for you? I had the opposite reaction. I I mean, I had read a lot of feminist theory in university, and I had probably been more extreme as a young woman on these topics. So when Me Too started happening and the kind of avalanche avalanche of mob pylons started happening, it made me rethink some of the experiences that I'd had and think that maybe my own reactions had been more extreme than I would have liked. Hmm. We'll say more about that. Well, I think that, like, look, there's an element at which human sexuality is always going to be messy and difficult and that there's no person in my life I know that doesn't have or hasn't had at some point in their life kind of issues around all of that. And that that part of being human, I think, is learning how to navigate those. And I just worry about this instinct to condemn and to alienate. And I worry about this instinct to, I don't know, it's that trauma instinct again. Like you, you don't want to devalue at all the experiences that are yeah. awful. And there, there also needs to be some way of thinking through these things in a clear, rational way and thinking through the consequences of, of reactions to them. Did you ever feel like being a woman was holding you back professionally? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I started my career in hip hop, which was a very male dominated industry. And there were challenging aspects of that for sure. You were covering hip hop, we should say. You were not participating. No, you were not a rapper. No, I was not a rapper. Um, I was a I was a music critic and uh, an online blogger for an American rap magazine. And so I spent- And you had actually, sorry to interrupt you, but you had done a master's thesis on rap, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. And so in that arena, there were certainly challenges, but I think by and large, the feeling that I came away from that with was that it toughened me up in really helpful and productive ways. And that the vast majority of men that I encountered were really good men. And that, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Do you feel like being a woman held you back? Well, uh, no. And, you know, this was something that I got into it about with people when my book, The Problem With Everything came out. And even a couple of years before that, when I was writing about Me Too, and I was writing about the sort of fallacy or just the limited qualities of terms like toxic masculinity and and all of that. I guess, uh, you know, my feeling was that being raised in the 70s, and I'm a little bit older than you, not much, was like all the messages were that girls can do whatever they want. And there were lots of initiatives to help girls, especially in things like STEM, not that I took advantage of any of those. But my perception was almost that boys were doing worse. Mm-hmm. Even back in the 80s, I felt like the, the teachers were, if, if they were calling on the boys more often, it was because they were so glad to see any boy raising his hand or having anything to contribute at all. There was there was a sense that for the most part, the girls were a lot sort of better in school and just able to kind of get with the program. And so I was writing about that kind of stuff you know, in my book, and I was just talking about how there was just seemed to be this gap between what I perceived as the reality, which is that it had never been a better time to be a woman, Mm -hmm. especially at least in the West. And this kind of message out in the in the Twitter sphere and elsewhere that it had never been a worse time for women, (laughs) you know? Uh And when I would point that out, people would say, well, 
you know, that that's easy for you to say, you just happen to have not had bad experiences or yeah. you have the privilege of being able to go through life and nothing really bad happened to you, but you, you need to be more cognizant of other kinds of experiences. And yeah, there's, there's some truth to that, but yeah, I know I, anything. I thought it was an advantage. I mean, I certainly got assignments sometimes mm-hmm. and, and gigs because they needed a woman. They wanted a woman doing the thing. Yeah, for sure. You know, they wanted a woman columnist. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. And as you, you know, the whole conversation about the status of men and boys, I mean, you've interviewed Richard Reeves as have yes, I. Ev- everybody has. Yeah. <laughs> There's nobody who has not interviewed Richard Reeves. He's such a great podcast guest. I want to find the one podcaster. <laughs> It's not interviewed. <laughs> He's so good. Um, but that conversation, I mean, that conversation couldn't be had until very, very recently. Right. So as always, I think these things are incredibly complicated and I think they lend themselves much better to two-hour podcasts than they do to, you know, two tweets. I mean, this is the uh, thing, right? This is the thing that we're living through right now. But okay. But do they lend themselves better to two-hour podcasts than 20-minute public radio segments. Mm. Why can't they why can't they get this done in 20 minutes? Richard Reeves by the way, if anybody doesn't know, <laughs> yeah, good point. wrote a book called of, of Boys and Men and talked about how boys are falling behind in school and girls are soaring ahead and there there's a there are real crises among men in the West and the US and Canada in particular. And he actually got a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. To your point, I think that this people would not have been receptive to this maybe even 1 year ago. But yeah, I don't know why like he can't go on on public radio and talk about this for 20 minutes and people can metabolize it. Can mm-hmm. they really not? I don't know. I mean, public radio, I mean, our segments were about seven minutes. And so um Okay. But even seven minutes, that's five questions. That's not undoable to get it's some a, of that's those. That's an eternity. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be. Yes. I mean, like I I challenge myself on my podcast to do everything in 30 minutes because I feel like that's a good chunk of time for people in terms of commuting or doing your dishes or whatever it may be. And you can get a ton done in 30 minutes. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you can. I just think that, again, I think that the pool of people who are working in those newsrooms right now come from, you know, come from a certain mindset and that, that, you know, there's also this this weird sort of siloing of information that is taking place that you might not even be aware of someone like Richard Reeves. You might not be aware of that data. You might not be aware of any of those arguments taking place. If you don't listen to podcasts, you don't know Ugh. that those views exist. You maybe live in neighborhoods where you're not encountering, you know, where you're encountering the same political views over and over and over again. You're saying that there are journalists who don't listen to these podcasts. Are Like the Richard Reeves book is a good example or the Louise Perry book, The Case Against the yes, Sexual Revolution. I know you, inter- you interviewed her as well. And she's another one. And I asked her when I had her on, like, how did you get away with this? And I think it's because she's British, partly. <laughs> and Richard Reeves is also British, even though he lives in the U.S., are you really suggesting that there are like people who work in media living in Toronto and New York City who would not have encountered Louise Perry or Richard Reeves or listened to any of these podcasts that they were on? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I I wouldn't know how to begin trying to figure that out. But what I do think is that that there are lots of people in radio, in the media who listen to a certain set of podcasts. You know, like the whole Joe Rogan conversation is so instructive because I would say like the vast majority of people that I know in media in Canada really strongly dislike Joe Rogan and have the impression of him that he is interviewing these incredibly extreme guests. And I don't, I honestly don't think um, people have listened to an entire episode of his. They may have seen a clip once or twice, but I just don't think people have any idea what he, what he actually does on that podcast. And so again, it's back to that kind of siloing. Like I, 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 I'm very, I'm very curious as are you, I know about what gets through and what doesn't. And I always found that so fascinating. It's like, what, what can you smuggle through the mainstream Mm -hmm. and what can't you like, what is just totally off limits 
and what gets through. And I think the answer is it just changes. It's different on different days. It's different with different teams. It's just like, it is, it's fascinating to me what gets through and what doesn't and, and how some stories are like totally off limits one day and then the next are not. Yeah. And I'm also paying close attention to like, especially in terms of book publishers, a lot of the more controversial issues, stuff around gender, for instance, the books that have been published about those subjects often come out from like center right or quote unquote conservative outlets. Even um, a book like Batya Ungar Sargon's mm-hmm. Bad News. I think, was she your first guest? She was, yeah. Yes. She's fantastic. I and love she's her. Been on, on my podcast as well. That was like a conservative imprint put that out. It was. And she's and, a socialist. Yes. And so it's funny because I used to caution people against publishing in that way. I said, oh, you're not going to get reviewed in the Times. You're going to get ignored by the mainstream media. You're going to be you know, tarred forever. I think that's starting to change. Maybe people don't care who publishes your book because, first of all, they don't care about your book. <laughs> Or they don't care. I think people don't think about, I shouldn't say that. I, I I think people don't think about like book publishers the way they used to. Like it's just not sort of, people aren't like, you know, thinking about like this book exists between hardcovers and somebody made the decision to publish it because of such and such. Mm. So I think that the stigma might be lessening. And so I, I also wonder if that means that more just mainstream publishers are going to just like, realize that they need to start publishing these books because people want to read them. Or maybe we won't care that something is a right-wing publisher, I guess is my... Yeah, I don't I don't know what the solution is to publishing right now. I think publishing is in a pretty extreme place. And when I think about kind of what is the path forward for young authors, I, I really don't know. I mean, the woke books are the books that get picked up, but they're, I, my understanding is they're not selling particularly well. Everybody well. hates them. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true that they, they will get purchased and they will have big get big advances, and then everybody hates them. It's like these publishers are making hate purchases; they're hate acquisitions. You know, <laughs> they're I, having hate sex with their own authors. Well, this is this is something that I think about all the time. Is I I don't understand. Like to me, and this is a question that I've asked a lot of guests. It's like I don't understand. Does does corporate America? Does publishing? Does journalism? Do they just genuinely not understand how unpopular this ideology is, this cluster of views? Do they really just not understand how unpopular it is? And I think the answer in some cases is no, they don't. Like they live yeah. online and they live in, you know, in real world circles where they're just not going to hear any opposition to this stuff. And they just don't get that this is this is just not popular with the general public. Yeah. And I, you know, I covered this, I wrote about this interview with a writer named Alex Perez, mm, uh, such a magazine good piece. Called, called Hobart. And he was talking about this phenomenon of the, the white Brooklyn ladies. He was talking about the sort of gatekeepers of publishing and especially the, the creative writing world, the world of MFA programs and all that stuff. And I do think, again, and this gets back to, you have to think about who goes into publishing. You don't become a book editor really, unless you can, if you have some other source of income that allows you to live in New York City and wear designer clothes and go into your pretty middling paying job. (laughs) Um, And so it's a very self-selecting group. Mm -hmm. So I can see how it would be easy to end up in an an echo chamber of, you know, other liberals who you see at yoga and people you see on Facebook and that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, not to be a cultural gatekeeper, uh, you know, some kind of arbiter of what is literature, what is art, or what's an intellectual pursuit that's worth, you know, giving somebody money for. Like that requires, at least it used to require having a kind of interesting mind and Mm -hmm. an ability to push past groupthink. Like that was actually the job. I I thought editors were supposed to be the people who could spot talent and, appreciate surprising and sometimes difficult ideas. And that's what's been lost. It so has. Like I I remember my editor, uh, one of my early editors, being happy about how much mail I got. Um, Yes. Because, you know, you're saying challenging things. Even hate mail. Even angry mail. Yeah. You're saying challenging things. It's, It's getting a huge response from the public. Like that was part of the job. 
And right. now I think everyone just lives in fear of a Twitter pylon. I mean, everybody, the last thing most journalists want is a, is a sort of big outrage from the public. <laughs> I, I just think it's, you know, that, that I don't think we can overstate how much fear is operating here. And you and I've talked about this before, and I think you've said it so well, like the stakes are very high for people. Like if people lose their job, they're probably not going to get another one. Like, you know, I've worked in journalism for 21 years. I've never bought property. Like I do not Mm. own a car. Like this is not a lucrative business and it's getting less so with every year. It is collapsing. And for people who have children, which I do not, um, the stakes are really, really high. Like you can lose your yeah. reputation, you can lose your career, you can lose your livelihood, you can, you could lose your home. Like these are not these stakes are high. Yeah, and I'm curious too what you think of like just the temperament that's required to to speak out. I know you've spoken about this with I think Bridget Fetisy a little bit. Like, do you just have a thicker skin naturally? Like, what mm. is it about you that allows you to sort of tolerate this kind of vitriol sometimes? I think it's probably a bunch of things. It's not that I don't care about people saying nasty things about me. It's just that I care about other things more. Right. Like about free speech, about a free press, about, you know, this idea of the life of the mind and being able to explore difficult and challenging ideas and be able to talk through complex and nuanced policy. And I just care about all that a lot more. It's not that I, that I don't care about people saying awful things about me because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know that I do have a particularly tough, thick skin, but, but I do think again, coming back to hip hop, I do think that toughened me up because as a very young woman, I had to, cope with a lot of that. And you realize a bunch of things. You realize that it's not really the end of the world. You that you get up the next day and everything in your real life is pretty much the same. All of your real friends uh, stay with you. And it's just not, it's like, I don't know. I like, I, I try to explain the sort of mob pylon as like way worse than you could have possibly imagined. And yet really not as bad as you'd think. Like, mm-hmm. It's just not that bad. It's like, if you can, if you can get through the first 48 hours, it's fine. It's just right. not that bad. Like it's, it's just, I mean, it shouldn't happen to anyone ever, but it's also like, it's just not the end of the world. I feel like I have to ask you about your, your hip hop career <laughs> and your, especially your, your master's thesis. I can't just drop that in and, and let that go. I mean, were you, were you an academic? Were you headed for a career in uh, like, critical studies of, of some sort? I was headed I was headed for a career as an English professor. And the turning point for me was I was down in New York right before the Iraq war. And I was reporting out a piece on anti-war hip hop and sitting with a lot of rappers in their homes and talking about the war and about 9-11 and um, about the climate in New York at that time. And it just felt so visceral and real and on the ground. And then I took this train up to Hamilton in Ontario to the small university town for this cultural studies conference. And uh, I just was like, yeah, it was just all about postmodernism. No one said a word about the war. There's nothing practical. I, you know, I gave a talk, maybe 11 people showed up and then I, no, that's good. (laughs) It just seemed so divorced from reality. And so, I don't know, just maybe, yeah, it just really was not for me. And then I went home and I wrote my piece and, you know, it got a huge readership and it, it just felt like, it just felt so much more immediate and it felt like I was part of a public conversation and it felt like, I was able to participate in the conversation about the big issues of our time. And I just never wanted anything else after that. Were you always kind of a contrarian though? Like, were you getting in trouble for saying stuff when you were like a teenager? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> like what kinds of stuff? Oh, probably just stupid stuff. I mean, like, I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. Um, but but yes, I've always been like that. I have a really hard time um, not kind of saying the thing. Um, and that's oftentimes not to my benefit, um, but it's just part of my makeup. And I think that, you know, while 
who have that tendency make things difficult for ourselves sometimes, that that is what you want in a journalist, that you need that. And this is the way journalists used to be. They used to be kind of difficult personalities, not always the easiest, you know, yeah. a bit quirky, like, you know, this is this is the deal. This is what it used to be. And it's not anymore. No, now we value conformity. We value groupthink. We value the ability to stay on side of the dogma of the orthodoxy. This is the new kind of thing. Okay. So, but we can say something like that and then people will say, but wait a second, look at all these people who are succeeding on Substack and making exponentially more than they would have made in mainstream media. How can you possibly say that journalists and audiences value groupthink when we have Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and, you know, Mm. let's go down the list of the obvious examples. Like, how do you, how do you respond to that? I think we have to separate what does journalism value and what does the audience value? I think those are two separate things. And I also think we have to ask ourselves, like if someone on Substack went and applied for a job tomorrow at one of the big media institutions, would that person ever get hired? Probably not, right? So you're trading, Hmm. going to Substack, you're trading the prestige, you're trading your membership in that club, and you're trading your ability to potentially get a job in that industry in the future for editorial freedom, for living according to your values, and for maybe, hopefully, serving your audience. Hmm. You so, And you don't think this is going to change? You don't think in 10 years, the New York Times is going to say, okay, I'm hiring Jesse Single and Tara Henley and... I have no idea. I, I have no idea. I don't think that would happen tomorrow, but I Not do... tomorrow. Five years, 10 years. <laughs> I do think, like, I do... And I've said this before, I think, to you that I do think I see some positive signs of the tide turning. Like, I do think that there are topics that were off limits before that are no longer off limits. I'm thinking about school closures. I'm thinking about the lab leak theory, the Hunter Biden laptop. I'm I even lockdowns to some extent. I think I think some of this stuff is changing. And I do think that the popularity of Substack and the podcasts is forcing the mainstream to contend with a lot of these uh, more controversial stories and points of view. But I, I think in the short term, I think it's a huge risk for people to leave the mainstream and do their own thing. Well, Tara, I'm going uh, to keep you uh, for the bonus content for about another 20 minutes. So people who want to hear that can go on over to the paid subscriber portion of this. But before we wrap up this part of the conversation, I want to ask you, what would you do if Substack was not available to you or just in general, if it didn't work? If you, if it was like, go back to your old kind of job or do something else entirely, which would you pick? <laughs> well, I thought about this too, obviously, because it was yes. a big risk. It's become relevant at any time. <laughs> I not mean, for you. the gamble, right, is that if you leave the mainstream, then you're probably not going to get a book deal again anytime soon either. Really? I you think really so. think that's true? I think so. I mean, I don't know if the states in Canada are different, but I think so. Oh my gosh. I think so. I mean, I, I hope I'm proven wrong. Even though wrong. there's a built-in audience, that makes no sense because you can literally point to your subscribers on the Substack and say, hey, publisher, this is how many people are going to probably buy this book. Yeah. I mean, you can. You're coming with your own marketing analytics. Yes. But I, I think that the publishers are still incredibly cautious, incredibly cautious. But anyways, my thinking was, you know, I probably couldn't publish a book anytime soon if it didn't work on Substack. And I had been a food editor for a while at a magazine and I love food and collect cookbooks and cook and I love food writing. And so my initial thought was like, okay, well, maybe I would just go to the food world. And then Alison Roman got canceled. (laughs) I realized that this stuff extends everywhere and Uh. that there probably is not a plan B. (laughs) Wow. There's no, so you have no other hobbies. You're like me. (laughs) I mean, but that's terrifying. It is. What would you say to a young person who wanted to get into journalism now? I know. And what do I say to young people? Yeah. I mean, it's such a volatile business. It's so hard to succeed. 
I, I don't know what to tell young people at this point. I really don't. I wish I had a better answer to that. <laughs> like this is the that's most a, depressing answer, answer no, ever. That's what I say too. <laughs> I say, you know, it's, it's uh, like if you can do, I'm tempted to say if there's anything else you can possibly do, do it because that's what they say about, that's what they've always told aspiring artists and creative people, right? Yeah. But I just had a doctor on, I had Zubin Dumania on the podcast a few weeks ago and that's what he tells aspiring medical students now. Like if there's anything you can do other than go into medicine, do it because it's become with managed care and everything else. It's a miserable job and it's not what it used to be. And it's not worth it. Wow. Like he was a rapper. He had a whole side career as a, as a rapper. And I think he would probably say, try to be a rapper. Don't be a doctor. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh my God. What world are we living in right now? We're on the upside down for sure. For sure. Well, Tara Henley, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. We're going to do some bonus content. But in the meantime, congratulations on a year on Substack, an absolutely spectacularly successful year. And I'm sure there's going to be more to come. Everybody should should read your Substack. Do they know where to find you? Tarahenley.substack.com. And Megan, thank you so much for having me. Your uh, podcast has meant so much to me and was really a lifeline when I was going through all of this. And I, I just think you're fantastic. And it's been such a huge honor to come on. Oh, well, I, I always love talking with you. So come back again. That was my conversation with former CBC journalist and producer, now Substack creator, Tara Henley. Her book is called Lean Out. And that's also the name of her podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts and also at her Substack, tarahenley.substack.com. That's H-E-N-L-E-Y. I was a guest on the December 29th edition of her podcast last month. And Tara, for what it's worth, has also written about her experience attending an unspeakeasy retreat in Vermont last fall. Those are off the record, of course, but she wrote about it discreetly. So if you're curious, you can check that out on the October 7th 2022 edition of her Substack. Speaking of the unspeakeasy, again, we have two retreats coming up the weekend of February 18th and 19th in Los Angeles and April 17th through 20th in Leavenworth, Washington. That's outside of Seattle. I shouldn't have said right outside of Seattle. It's up in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. So, you know, a little bit of a drive, but it's going to be totally worth it. Not least of all, because it will feature guest speaker Katie Herzog of the Blocked and Reported podcast. So go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out more and to request information. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 